James Horn was such a violent and dangerous sex offender that a group of experts argued he should remain separated from society even after he served over a decade in prison. But can we keep someone locked up for crimes they have yet to commit? Join me today and find out. It's called civil commitment, and it couldn't be more controversial. Basically, it means the government can keep you locked up forever if they deem that you are too dangerous to rejoin society. Then again, when you hear the case of James Horn, you might not think it's so controversial. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm your host, Chris Gonsick. Our expert and guest today is the head of the Behavioral Analysis Unit at the U.S. Marshal Service. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's just start with the proper definition of civil confinement so that people can keep that in the back of their minds as we go through this episode. So civil commitment of sexually violent predators or sexually dangerous persons, depending on the state, has been around since 1990. The first state was Washington that passed SVP law. So it's been around since 1990. There are 20 states that have SVP laws. In 2006, with the passage of the Adam Walsh Act, um, that authorized civil commitment of sexually dangerous persons at the federal level. And civil commitment, just to say again, means that you can commit a crime, you can do your time in prison, and a group of psychologists and a judge, and obviously we're going to go into a little bit more to the process, can make a decision that while you may have served your time and served your debt to society, you are still too dangerous an individual to let out into the into the public sector. Correct. So you have civil commitment where somebody is mentally ill, um, too dangerous to release, and then you have civil commitment where somebody is mentally ill and likely to reoffend sexually. So those mm -hmm. are two different things. Does it apply to people who have committed homicides or other heinous acts or is mostly uh, confined to sex offenders? So the uh, civil commitment of sexually violent predators is unique to sex offenders. The other type of civil commitment where somebody might be uh, pose a danger to themselves or somebody else, um, you know, that could be for any type of crime, mm -hmm. but it's because of their mental illness, they're too dangerous to release. They are held until and get treatment, and once they can demonstrate to the court they're no longer dangerous, they can be released. Okay. Now we got it, and now we're jumping into the weeds on a very interesting case. And this gentleman that we're talking about today, you met him at Butner Prison in North Carolina. Correct. So uh, James Horn was an inmate at the Federal Correctional Complex in Butner, North Carolina. Um, and so he was there waiting for his civil commitment hearing um, at the time that I worked in the uh, commitment and treatment program. Mm -hmm. That program is where individuals who are certified as sexually dangerous or committed as sexually dangerous are housed and receive treatment. Um, James Horn was at Butner. He did not participate in treatment, but he was okay. housed there waiting for his hearing. Let's rewind and start at the beginning of James Horn's story. So James Horn, as far as his um, history, his sexual offense history, um, 
dates back to um, the early 90s. He was married in uh, 1989 following his discharge from the Marine Corps. Shortly thereafter, he was separated. His wife left him. Uh, so they were separated a, a year or so after they were married. She was living in her own apartment. Mr. Horn stalked her, did surveillance to see when she was home. He entered into the apartment, held a knife to her throat, and then over a 24-hour period proceeded to sexually assault her. He had tied her up, threatened to kill her, and that did not end until she was able to um, convince him that she would not leave him as long as he would get help. They went out to eat at a restaurant, and she was able to escape. However, there was no police report filed. He checked himself into a psychiatric hospital, and so he was not arrested or charged for that first incident. Mm. This is starting a pattern. Correct. Um, So then less than a year later after that relationship, he began to date a coworker. Five weeks or so into that relationship, she decided uh, the relationship was over and she wanted to break up with him. Mr. Horn was a long-haul truck driver, so he was out delivering a load when she called him to break mm-hmm. up with him. Uh-huh. He turned around uh, with, of course, she she was unaware that he had done that, and he returned to the house where she was. He broke into the apartment while she was sleeping. Um, he duct taped her, um, forced her to have sex with him, forced her to sit on the end of the bathtub while he took a bath. And after sexually assaulting her, he forced her into his truck. They drove across state lines. Um, He parked at a rest stop with her, and she was still bound, tied up. Uh, He sexually assaulted her again and then drove her back home the next day and released her. So he was actually arrested, uh, charged with rape and kidnapping, and Mm -hmm. sentenced to four years and served about three years of that sentence. Let me just do a timeout for one second, because already this seems odd. How do you get sentenced for kidnapping and rape and you get four years? Rape usually carries quite a, a, a stiff penalty. Four years seems like grossly insignificant relative to the crimes that he committed. I would agree with that. Right. However, you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. he was only sentenced to four years and did not even have to serve all four years. Um, so he was released, you know, about three years into that sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, so once released, within a few weeks, he was in another relationship eventually got married to a second wife. Um, this was in 1995. Mm-hmm. Less than a year later, she moved out. She also filed for a divorce. She was pregnant with his child at that time. He was abusive to her. He was physically abusive in the previous relationships as well. Mr. Horn did not take the divorce well or her decision to file for divorce. Right. Um, she moved out, uh, moved into a different house he stalked her until he knew where she lived while her and her nine-year-old daughter were asleep he broke in he was waiting at the end of the bed startled her grabbed her mm-hmm. um he held a, a scissors to her throat and threatened to kill her he made the um, daughter go into the bathroom um, so she wasn't in the bedroom with them and then he proceeded to sexually assault his wife threatened to kill her um he raped her He raped her, yep. Mm -hmm. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. So from there, he took her outside, still had the, the scissors to her throat, drove her to a motel and tied her to the bed and went to sleep. The next morning they left the motel. He forced her into the trunk of the car and drove her to another motel where he sexually assaulted her several more times. Her daughter was able to go to the grandmother who was able to contact the police. Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to um, locate her with Horn at the motel and take him into custody. And this is in Springfield, Missouri. This is in Missouri, yep. Right. So he's arrested. I believe he received a 13-year sentence mm -hmm. at that time. So while Mr. Horn was in custody, he's at um, he's in the Federal Bureau of Prisons because he crossed state lines. So uh -huh. uh, those are you know federal charges. So he's serving his time in federal prison. And in 2006, uh, with the passage of the Adam Walsh Act, what that allowed for was the federal civil commitment of sex offenders. So that meant that um, towards the end of Horn's sentence, he would be evaluated by the Bureau of Prisons to see if he would meet criteria for certification. So at the end of his sentence, in 2007, when he was supposed to be released, he went through the evaluation process mm -hmm. and the panel, the Sex Offender Certification Review Branch, which is part of the Bureau of Prisons, evaluated him and certified him as sexually dangerous. And when he was in Butner, did he get the certification first and then he was offered treatment and he refused treatment? So he, he was certified and sent to Butner for the full forensic evaluation, uh -huh. which is done by a forensic psychologist. And so during that time, he did not participate in treatment. But there was a lawsuit, the uh, U.S. versus Comstock, where the inmates had filed the lawsuit that the Adam Walsh Act Section 4248 civil commitment was not constitutional. Right. So during that time frame, while that was working its way through the court, made its way to the Supreme Court, the offenders were advised not to participate in treatment for fear that anything they said during treatment could then potentially be used during their commitment hearing. So he oh. did not participate in treatment which was at that time consistent with a lot of other people on that unit who were pending right. a commitment hearing. I just want to get back to the psychologist walks in the room, says, hi, I'm here to evaluate you to make a very important decision about your future. I mean, this is an, such an extraordinary thing to try to determine. It's almost kind of like the minority report pre-crime, you know, to hold you for something you haven't done. But we think there's going to be a pretty good likelihood that you will do it. How is she actually or he making that evaluation? Most of the time, back in 
that time, 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. the um, uh, inmates refused to meet with the evaluator. So there was no in-person interview of the inmate. They would meet with the defense psychologist, but they routinely refused to meet with the government psychologist. So what that person then would have access to would be all historical records. So uh -huh. obviously the, the BOP records, but any previous psychiatric hospitalization, um, any previous yeah, mental health history. Um, so you were, you'd have to rely on records. And that's noted in the evaluation that because the person refused to participate in the interview, you're limited really to what you can right. um, find in the records. But isn't that going to work against you? Well, if you meet with the defense psychologist and end interview with them, that perspective of the defense expert is going to be taken into consideration the same way the, uh, the government expert evaluation will be taken into consideration. So this extraordinarily important decision is being made, has been made without ever interviewing the, the inmate. So the forensic psychologist who does the evaluation right. for the government is, that's one piece of the pie. Right. The other piece is going to be the evaluation that the defense expert does. Right, right. Both of those are going to be, you know, they're going to go to court. Right. And ultimately it's the judge who's going to make that decision. What, how, do, how can you determine whether someone's going to be dangerous in the future? So that, that's statutorily defined. So the Adam okay. Walsh Act, the 4248, there's three prongs to that. Prong one is, has this person engaged in sexually violent conduct or uh, child molestation? And in Horn's case, the answer is yes. Right, so but he... the evaluator still needs to establish that and articulate that in the report. Okay. So part of the evaluation is to articulate all of the different crimes that they've committed and behaviors that they've engaged in that support prong one. Right. Um, in Horn's case, that was not disputed. So both the, de the defense and the government agreed on that, mm -hmm. that he had engaged in uh, sexually violent behavior. Prong two, which is, does this person suffer from a mental disease or abnormality? Because again, civil commitment has to be tied to this a psychiatric diagnosis. So part of the evaluation is, is determining, does this person meet that criteria? Do they have a diagnosis that would fit for individuals who are civilly committed as sexually dangerous? Those diagnoses are typically like a paraphilia. Um, it could be a personality disorder, like antisocial personality. And it's not any diagnosis. It has to be a diagnosis that then leads to prong three, which is will that person, as a result of that diagnosis have serious difficulty refraining from engaging in future sexually violent conduct or child right. molestation. And this is the tough one. That's that's a tough tough thing to demonstrate to the court. So part of the evaluation is looking for ways to show that there is evidence that that person has that third prong, mm -hmm. right? That they they have serious would have serious difficulty refraining from which is a difficult thing to establish because, right, you're talking about predicting future behavior. Right. Even though you didn't do the evaluation, what did you think of James Horn? As you said, I did not do the evaluation. Based on court records, you know, he had diagnoses of um, paraphilia, non-consent, which is essentially 
arousal from engaging in non-consenting sexual behavior. So, so rape. Um, he had a. And sec- is that is that something that is quite common in a sex offender? Is that is that a, unusual, or is it associated with a? A violent sex offender. Who is that that kind of behavior most closely associated with? Yeah. So I, individuals who are, I think, undergoing the the civil commitment process and been certified as sexually dangerous. That would be a, a common diagnosis. Um, or pedophilia is is probably as common as as that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also had a um, sexual sadism diagnosis. And that's wanting to cause pain during during sex yep it's it's deriving sexual pleasure from humiliation degrading somebody causing pain um and it's engaging in those behaviors and that essentially you know arouses somebody or turns them on to inflict physical or psychological harm or pain and when you're talking to inmates and let's say you're not doing an evaluation you know per se maybe this is in treatment and we'll get to that is that something that the inmates who are involved in this kind of activity is that something that they have enough introspection to say yeah i do derive pleasure on it or that sounds so horrible oh no 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 that's not me so whether or not they have that level of self-awareness Probably depends. I think sex offenders tend to have uh, cognitive distortions that allow themselves to to think that what they're doing really isn't that bad. So in their minds, you know, they may have a different interpretation as to what they're doing and why what they're doing is really not quite that harmful. What, um, what, what's a common reason for why it's not that harmful? They might minimize the harm. They might say that especially with pedophilia, for example, that they loved the child, uh, they did not cause harm to the child. It was in the mm-hmm. context of a, a loving relationship. They mm-hmm. were you know, teaching the child about sex education, something that would minimize the, the actual seriousness of what they were doing. So in their mind, it was acceptable. Okay, so we're picking up we're picking up horn. The evaluation has been completed in the best way that they can complete it, given that the state psychologist did not have the opportunity to interview Horn, but is drawing from all the things that you had said. And they had a defense psychologist who's obviously going to come up with a very biased I mean, what are the what are the defenses usually look like? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. So human behavior is complex, and you could have two psychologists observe the same exact behavior and and come to different conclusions about 
why somebody did what they did, what their motivations were. Um, and in these sorts of hearings where you're trying to make the argument that, you know, somebody will have serious difficulty refraining from engaging in this behavior in the future in the case of Horn. Um, so, we, so we get these evaluations and now this is the kind of thing where the two opposing psychologists, if you will, go battle it out in front of a judge. And is it safe to say that most judges do not have any background in this and they're just going by who is uh, presenting them the, the best argument? You bring in the defense expert and the government expert and then, uh, of course, you know, the other elements that the individual is going to testify, um, other aspects, whether they were in treatment, the treatment provider might testify. And So Horn wasn't in treatment. Did he testify? I'm sure he did. But it's more than just the evaluations. That's a huge piece of it. Uh -huh. But it would be their behavior in treatment. It would be their behavior on the unit. So if they were... Um, you know, got incident reports, if they were acting out, that would be taken into consideration. So and, say, the, and say the certification again, they were certified that they were... Sexually dangerous. Sexually dangerous. And just to spend a moment on that, what does that mean to be sexually dangerous? The uh, legal um, parameter is clear and convincing evidence that they would have serious difficulty refraining from engaging in that sexually violent behavior, child molestation, due to a mental disease, okay. abnormality. Is it quite hard to get classified as sexually dangerous or is that a quite common? And does it then make a big difference when you're going to a civil commitment hearing whether or not you have that designation? It's less than half a percent of offenders who reach the end of their criminal sentence that are actually certified by the panel. So less than half of 1% um, are certified, then that group goes before the court for the civil commitment hearing. So everybody who goes to a civil commitment hearing has been certified as sexually dangerous, but it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the overall offender population in the federal system. Right. So if you get it, it's you're, you're a distinguished individual for all the wrong reasons. That's a good way of saying it. And now we're at the civil commitment hearing for Horn. And all these evaluations have been done. And what are, what are the primary arguments of each side? The primary argument for the government was that, you know, Horn has engaged in sexually violent behavior. That was, again, agreed upon by both sides. Um, that his behavior was evidence of, you know, personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, um, and antisocial, I think, with antisocial traits. Um, he had the sexual sadism diagnosis and the paraphilia. So the government made that argument that based on everything, you know, about Horn, his criminal history and, and all of the documents and records that they had access to, um, that he met criteria that prong to, he had those diagnoses and that because of that, he would engage in that behavior again. That was the government's case. Mm -hmm. The defense, again, agreed with prong one, right? There was no denial in what Horn had done historically. Their argument was that he did not meet criteria for a paraphilia diagnosis. And paraphilia? The non-consent so that he okay. was um, 
sexually aroused to engaging in, in sexual encounters that were non-consensual. So they said that Horn did not meet criteria for that diagnosis and that he may have been antisocial, but that he did not have uh, sadism. He did not have a paraphilia. And because of that, you can't have the third prong. The third prong is contingent upon having a mental disease or abnormality um, that would then result in you having serious difficulty refraining from that behavior. So the defense argued that he didn't even meet prong two. So given what we've talked about in this short period of time, it would seem to me a layman who knows nothing, just a concerned citizen that I don't want certain people out in society. I would have to say that he did meet prong two. So the defense made the case that it was not, he did not engage in that behavior because of sexual deviance, that it was due to anger management and that really he had an anger management problem and that it was restricted to a very specific scenario, which was the end of a relationship. So outside the context of a relationship ending, um, somebody divorcing him or breaking up with him outside of that, he was okay, and that it was not sexual in nature. It was driven by anger, and he had completed anger management training, um, and and therefore that would not cause him to to meet prong three. Right, and that was so. That was the defense. But given given the duct tape, given that he kidnapped and essentially tortured someone, they must have made an extraordinarily convincing argument. Did you think he met prong two? To me, he, he would have met prong two if I was the one who had evaluated him. Right. Okay. So they've made this extraordinary fantasy argument convincingly, and the judge who does not have an, any expertise in this world is that fair to say yep they decided that the defense made a stronger case that horn actually did not have those diagnoses what were the odds that he was going to get out and never have a relationship that was never that was going to end i guess it depends who you ask the um i mean he obviously liked to be in relationships he sought out relationships so he was going to be in a relationship and given the the guy that he was it was most likely going to end all of those things seem plausible to and i don't even know what i'm talking about it it would seem obvious however the, the defense made the case that it was unlikely that he was going to be in a situation like that again where he would be in a relationship that would come to an end, even though historically he got into relationships quickly. He got into relationships as soon as he got out of prison and that those relationships were um, had a lot of physical violence and abuse and ended poorly, right? right. He did not handle that well at all and uh, victimize these women. So the likelihood of him doing that again, you would think would be high however i mean if they could just come to us we figured it out on this podcast pretty quickly what conclusion did the judge come to so the judge ultimately uh did not civilly commit horn um and he was released
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at so, you know, I had um, left the Bureau of Prisons at that point, went to the Marshal Service, and that's when uh, James Horn's name surfaced again in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, there was um, a, a woman who had escaped from her house, went to the neighbors, asked them to call 911 because her boyfriend had been holding her in a box for four months, and the boyfriend was James Horn. So when the police went to find him and he fled, became a fugitive, that's when the U.S. Marshals got involved. And because I you know, had known Mr. Horn from Butner, I did what I could to assist the deputies providing them information and mm-hmm. operations support, whatever we could do to assist in locating Mr. Horn. Mm-hmm. And I will say the box that he kept her in is 100 inches long, by 48 inches wide uh, by 52 inches tall and there were sleeping bags in there clothes a place to go to the bathroom and then he would keep her in there during the day and he would let her out at night and they would sit together on the porch and all the neighbors thought it was a lovely relationship and then he would put her back in the box as the chief said it stayed that way for four months so after the victim escaped, she went to, you know, the neighbors, they called the uh, local law enforcement who arrived. The victim went to a neighboring town to stay with family mm-hmm. while Horn was on the run. Unfortunately, Horn stalked her and found her. So he knew where she was staying and killed her and her son who was at the house. Um, and her brother returned the next morning and found her and her son had been killed presumably by Horn, and that's when the manhunt continued, and he was eventually located in a cabin, um, and he was in the closet. He had a firearm and ended up getting into it with the, with law enforcement, had mm-hmm. the weapon, and they fired in return, and he was killed. Mm-hmm. And so what he did was repeat the exact same behavior. Even Yeah, correct. Even worse, escalated to the point of killing his victim and her son Mm -hmm. look this is where i'm torn because on the one hand i can easily see look it's a very it's the american way you you commit your crime you do your time and then you get back released into society and hopefully prison has helped reform you and that's the way the system works and obviously i support that on the other hand you have somebody like this who has repeated behavior and that seems you know, it seems only too likely that he will commit this again. Why wouldn't he? This brings us to the treatment phase. How do you treat somebody who is sexually deviant and are they wired a certain way and it doesn't really matter what you do? So I think the thing to remember with sex offender treatment is it's not one size fits all. And I think the tendency is for people to think that, you know, they're, it's a homogenous group. They're all the, this. They're all the same. They can all uh, be treated the same, and that's not the case. So it's a it's a heterogeneous group. They have different motivations as to why they do what they do, 
and therefore they have different treatment needs. So treatment requires you to, you know, thoroughly evaluate the individual to identify, you know, who they are and and why they do what they do. And once you're able to uh, kind of establish that or under, better understand that, then you can tailor the treatment plan accordingly, at least as far as the in the federal system, the commitment and treatment program is primarily a group therapy. There's some individual therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a therapeutic community. So everybody that they're housed with on the um, treatment side are part of a therapeutic community, maintaining pro-social values, kind of reinforcing the sorts of values that right. you would want them to continue um, in the in right. the community. Is it possible to rehabilitate them? Or is that just the way they're made? So I think it depends. Back to the the comment about them being a heterogeneous group and what the motivation is. And if it's, you know, for those where it's biologically driven and they have this, um, you know, this the sexual deviancy and the uh, sexual arousal to deviant things, um, I think it's it's difficult to, you know, offset that or negate that or, you know, to completely get rid of that um is sexual deviance a learned behavior or is it in your dna i think it's like all behaviors where it's nature nurture there's nothing um i think you know behavior is complex and to be able to narrow it down to a gene or one you know a childhood incident i think is it it diminishes the complexity of behavior and that people become who they are through an interaction of nature and nurture so things that they might be predisposed to and things that happen in their environment that sort of combine to then mm-hmm. you know result in um so i just want to i just want to go down some of the treatment subjects that i was doing a little uh you know one is victim empathy what is how do you approach that and what is their normal feeling towards victims so the, the idea of a, a victim empathy group would be uh, that if you could assist the offender in empathizing with the victim, understanding um, how what they did affected another person, that, that that insight will help you know, contribute to them no longer engaging in that behavior again. And I think you know, there's, there's mixed results of whether or not um, victim empathy is leads to a reduction in future offending behavior. I, d- I don't think the research necessarily supports that. Um, and how long would it take? I mean, does it take years for them to actually realize? Because uh, in Horn's case, he had committed these crimes, you know, repeatedly, and clearly he had no victim empathy. So, I mean, it doesn't happen in a, in a week. Well, and also, you know, insight is not enough. Understanding the harm you cause a victim, being able to put yourself in their shoes, uh, the perspective taking, that alone is is insufficient to prevent somebody from mm. engaging in that behavior again. Have you seen tr- true remorse? Yeah. You have? Like, were you, you believed it. They weren't saying it for your benefit. Yep. Yeah. And how long did that take? For somebody to get to that point? Yeah. I mean, people might express remorse from the start. There might be people who are psychopaths who 
express remorse who aren't actually remorseful. So, you know, if you tie remorse, feeling bad to future behavior, um, you know, somebody like Horn, it wouldn't matter if he said he felt bad. He, he continues to go out and engage in that behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's the true test of remorse. Right. Um, so I think there are people who feel bad, but I don't know that that necessarily translates to not engaging in the behavior right, right. again, because it's there are other things that contribute to somebody offending. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys do in the treatment program? So the treatment program was part of a therapeutic community. That's important because that's part of the treatment. So that's a vehicle through which treatment uh, takes place. So the idea is that you have a group of individuals who are all engaged in treatment, uh, which takes place during the day. However, you know, in order to for them to really start to embrace and integrate change, it needs to be you know, 24, seven, seven days a week, not just when staff are there. And so the idea behind a therapeutic community is that you're housed with people who, you know, are also trying to adopt pro-social values and norms and that they, you would call each other out. You would abide by a different set of standards than the general prison population. We also had group therapy. Initially, when you come into treatment, there's the evaluation process, which uh, is important because you cannot do one size fits all. So in order right. to do treatment, you have to tailor the treatment to the individual and you have to spend considerable time establishing rapport and trust and identifying you know, who they are and their motivational pathways. Once you do that, then you can move into um, the actual treatment. And you don't start with the sex offender specific treatment. You start with treatment of other other elements of of who they are if if it is anger management or um other other behaviors like Mm -hmm. that before you then get into the sex offender specific treatment Um, and once you get to that stage in the in the treatment um depending on who the person is and what they need it might be if they're hypersexual or sexually dysregulated so like hypersexual if they're you know masturbating 10 times a day for example you'd put them in a sexual self-regulation group, which teaches them other means of regulating uh-huh. uh, that don't involve masturbating. You know, that's one example. You talked about the victim empathy group. Another group is the sexual offense history. Uh-huh. They have to account for, you know, the previous sexual offending, whether or not they've been arrested, charged, or convicted for it, but other uh, sexual offending behavior that they've engaged in. In your opinion, have you seen someone who was unreleasable change to become releasable, in your opinion? Has the treatment worked, and how long did that take? It's not that somebody would be cured completely of pedophilia. That's not the the standard. The standard is to manage them in the least restrictive environment, Mm -hmm. which could be in the community on conditional release. And what that means is they would have, you know, different um, requirements, whether GPS monitoring or internet monitoring or having to go and see the, you know, the PO, they would have an entire plan of conditions to manage them in the community. Mm -hmm. Because clearly to have somebody civilly committed, um, it's a pretty high bar. If somebody is civilly committed, how often do they get uh, reevaluated annually. Annually, given the climate that we are in, 
balancing the safety of the public versus the rights of the individual, where do you think the future of civil commitment lies? Do you think we'll see more of it? Do you think we'll see less of it? So I think civil commitment is here to stay. Um, I think the fact that almost, you know, 20 states, so less than half, but 20 states and now the federal system have civil commitment. Um, the the mentality is that there's a, a need for it. Um, and so I, I think that it's, it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, Adam Walsh Act 4248, so the civil commitment in the federal system has already gone to the Supreme Court, um, and the ruling that it was unconstitutional was overturned, so the federal system has already ruled on that, that it's constitutional. Well, Chief, thanks very much for coming down. I think I found where I stand on the issue, but I vacillated. But you've helped me make this decision, and certainly the case of uh, James Horn has helped me make this decision. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you for having me. So if you like us, tell them what they need to do. Give us a yeah. thumbs up. Yeah, thumbs five, up, subscribe. Subscribe. Yes, tell your friends. Tell your friends. Yeah. <laughs> Please do all of that. And finally, Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the United States Marshals Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the United States Marshals Service. Stay safe, everyone. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.